Was Charles Spurgeon a Christian Zionist? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, this is Michael Brown. Welcome to a very special edition of the Line of Fire broadcast. I won't be taking your calls today, but we're going to dig into the scriptures together, all right? And then we're going to look at some quotes from notable Christian leaders like Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle, prominent Christian leaders in the 1800s, and see what they had to say about the restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Now, I want to be completely candid with you. When I came to faith in 1971, the church where I came to faith believed that God had brought the Jewish people back to the land and was protecting them and also believed that Jewish people needed Jesus to be saved. So there wasn't an over-glorifying or over-sentimentalizing of anything. We believed that God had chosen the Jewish people, that Jewish people without Jesus were away from God and needed to be saved, but that God in his wisdom and providence and keeping his word had brought the Jewish people back to the land. And then I was in circles after that, and I myself questioned, should we look at prophecy like that today? Do the ancient prophecies come to pass literally? You know, if the Bible talks about Moab in the Old Testament, do we have to figure out who is Moab today? How does that work? And I questioned a lot of it, but ultimately saw clearly, for me, clearly in Scripture, that God had promised to bring the Jewish people back to the land in unbelief, and that he was doing that very thing in our day. And it was only when I was traveling overseas, I remember being in England in the mid-1990s, and I was referencing Israel, and people like, yeah, these Christian Zionists, they're like, wow, you know, they just, they're bad, they're off, they're weird. It's like, well, is it different in England than in America? Because in America, there's so much evangelical support for Israel. And, and anyway, over the years, of course, now I've interacted with many who differ with my position and many who agree with my position. But interestingly, as I've gone to India 26 times now, as, as I've gone to Korea 13, 14 times, as I've gone to other countries around the world, Japan and, and China and Africa, the continent of Africa, just a couple times there in Mexico and about 200 trips outside the United States, I have met with an extraordinary love for Israel extraordinary prayer for the Jewish people, extraordinary faith that God himself has brought the Jewish people back to the land. You have no idea, though, the degree of, of attack that we come under. I'm not complaining, not complaining in the least. My privilege and joy to be attacked for the truth and for the gospel. But on a daily basis, you're not a Christian because you're a Zionist, as if being a Zionist is now an ugly, an, an ugly bad thing. So was Charles Spurgeon a Zionist. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, by Zionism, we mean the belief that the Jewish people are entitled to their ancient homeland, or that it is God's plan for them to have their ancient homeland. And as a Christian Zionist, you believe, well, a Zionist in general wouldn't even have to bring God in theoretically, that the Jewish people should have their own homeland where it has always been. That would be Zionism doesn't mean that other people have to be displaced because of that or other people mistreat it. 
but just that there should be a Jewish homeland in the Middle East in what has been Israel through the century. All right. And a Christian Zionist would say that God himself has promised to bring the Jewish people back to the land. Now, someone posted the other day and and said, Leviticus 26 makes it clear that God cursed Israel and is finished with Israel. End of subject. I thought of all passages to quote, buddy, you quoted the wrong passage. So Leviticus 26, like Deuteronomy 28, gives blessings for obedience to the Torah and curses for disobedience. Beginning in verse 14 of Leviticus 26. But if you will not listen to me, nor carry out all these mitzvot, these commandments, and if you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so that you do not keep all my mitzvot, but instead break my covenant, then I will do the following to you in return. By the way, TLV leaves mitzvot in Hebrew because it's such a common word in Hebrew, the, the keeping of the commandments, the mitzvot, doing the mitzvot. So that's why it's there and, and, and it's, it's Hebrew into English. So God now begins to say, if, if you break my covenant, if you don't keep my commandments, I'll do the following to you in return. I'll appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever that will dim the eyes and cause the soul upon away. You'll sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I'll set my face against you and you'll be routed before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you'll flee when no one pursues. And, and, it, and it goes on, verse 18. If you, in spite of these things, will not listen to me, then I'll chastise you seven times more for your sin. It gets very intense. Verse 21, if you keep walking contrary to me, will not listen to me, then I'll multiply the plagues on you seven times like your sin. It gets worse and worse. Verse 23, now, if in spite of these things, you'll not be chastened by me, but will walk contrary to me instead, then I'll also walk contrary to you. And I'll strike you, I myself, seven times for your sins. Then verse 27, yet if in spite of this, you'll not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I'll walk contrary to you in wrath. So I'll chastise you seven times for your sins. It goes on and on. You'll be exiled and the sanctuary will be destroyed and the land will enjoy its Shabbatot, its Sabbaths. Uh, verse 36, as for those who remain, I'll bring weakness into their hearts in the land of their enemies so that the sound of a driven leaf will put them to flight and they'll flee as one flees from the sword even when no one is pursuing. So you're, you're going to suffer. Those who remain, those in the land of your enemies, you're going to suffer terribly. Verse 40, but... If they confess their iniquity and that of their fathers and the treachery they committed against me and how they walk contrary to me, in return, I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. And if at that time their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they accept the punishment for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land, but the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Shabbatot, its Sabbaths, while it lies desolate without them. And they will accept the punishment of their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I hate them into utter destruction and break my covenant with them. For I am out and I their God. But for for their sake, I'll remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am Adonai. I am the Lord. So God's saying, even with this extreme judgment, number one, I'm not going to totally wipe out Israel. I I will remember the covenant. And Paul in Galatians 3.17 reminds us that the law, the, the Torah, the Sinai covenant, which came 430 years after the promises to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, it doesn't annul the promises. So God says, I'm going to remember. And then he says, if you confess your iniquity, I'm going to restore. 
So even in the midst of the most severe judgment promised, God's saying, I'm still going to remember you. Elsewhere, God says, I spoke about you in my wrath, but my heart always yearned for you. That's God's love, even as he chastises his disobedient children, even as he judges them, even if he's, even as he says, you're not my people. Yeah, you are my people chosen, but you are not my people in relationship right now. You're under my judgment. I don't know you. In that respect, I'm still going to remember you. I'm not going to utterly destroy you. That's why the Jewish people have been preserved. Otherwise, we would have been completely wiped out. All right, now, Ezekiel 36 is initially spoken in the context of the return of the Jewish people from Babylonian exile. That's the initial context, but you can see from reading it that it was never fulfilled then. Like many other Old Testament prophecies, prophecies of judgment, prophecies of restoration, prophecies of the Messiah, they start at a certain point and they'll be fulfilled at a later point. So God starts with words of, of comfort. Verse 8, Ezekiel 36, 8, You mountains of Israel, you will shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit for my people Israel, for their return is near. Verse 13, thus says Adonai Elohim, thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you are a devourer of men, you deprive your nation of children, therefore you will no longer devour men, and you will no longer deprive your nation of children. So this is promises to the, to the land. And then verse 16, the word of Adonai came to me saying, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their way and by their deeds. The way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman and her nida. That's the technical term for a woman in her menstrual uncleanness. So I poured out my fury on them for the blood which they had shed upon the land because they had defiled it with their idols. And he goes on and says this now in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this says Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, house of Israel, but for my holy name. He says in the previous verse, and the same thing here, which you profaned among the nations wherever you went. So wherever the Jewish people were scattered among the nations, the nations said, aha, you see, they're guilty. Aha, God's Yahweh's people, some of them rather with Yahweh, he can't, the God of Israel, he can't keep his people. He can't preserve them. They're scattered. His temple's destroyed. His name gets, gets defiled, and whatever bad behavior they had would further defile his name. So he said, I'm not doing this for your sake, but for the sake of my name. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am Adonai. It is a declaration of Adonai when I am sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from the nations, gather you out all the countries, and bring you back to your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the stony heart from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So are you getting this? The children of Israel, the Jewish people have not yet repented. His name is being defiled, the Lord's name among the nations. But God says for his name's sake, he will act and bring his people back to the land and then sprinkle clean water on them, and then give them a new heart. So yes, under the Sinai covenant, the Jewish people had to repent. Israel had to repent in order to be restored to the land. If Israel sinned and was exiled, Israel had to, be, had to repent to be restored. That's under the Sinai covenant. But God can decide to act over and above that for the sake of his name. Isn't he sovereign after all? Isn't he the king? After all, isn't he the ruler of the universe after all? 
And if he decides for the sake of his name to, to bring back, he can bring back. And as it's reiterated in, in Romans 9, he'll have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God it's not all about works and works righteousness and our efforts because we all fall short. And this encourages all believers. This should encourage the church because if God had mercy on Israel and restored Israel, if God restored the Jewish people, even in unbelief, if that's what's been happening, some, some of the, the Zionist leaders, communists and atheists and absolutely not believers in the God of Israel, and God worked through them to birth a movement to bring people back, that no flesh can glory in his presence, that no one can boast about righteousness. We need to see this as the hand of God. Now, you'll, you'll say, well, what about the injustice or Israel and, and war? And that? Well, we'll come to all that. First, we're starting with scripture. I see the hand of God unmistakably, clearly, undeniably. More scripture, and then we get to Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle. God of light, hear our cry. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. We're talking about Zionism and the Bible, Christian Zionism and the Bible. Can you believe that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus alone saves, and also believe that God keeps his promises to the Jewish people? Of course. Why not? Where is there a contradiction? If you said Jews don't need Jesus to be saved, if you said Jews have a covenant of their own, if you said Jews can live by the righteousness of the law and don't need the Savior, the Messiah, that would be wrong. That would be heretical. That would be a denial of the cross. That would be a denial of salvation only through Jesus. But if you say, yeah, Jewish people need Jesus to be saved, they need Yeshua like everybody else, but we also believe that God has brought them back to the land and he's doing this for many reasons. He has his reasons in history and in future prophecy to do what he's doing, but he's keeping his promises. It's not, it is not racial supremacy. It is not favoritism. It is that God keeps his promises. All right, I'm not taking calls today, but we're going to look in a moment in an amazing sermon preached by Charles Spurgeon in 1864, and then an amazing message from Bishop J.C. Ryle. Everything I'm going to quote to you in the, the minutes that follow after these scriptures is included in the new, revised, updated, expanded edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. If you were blessed by the first edition, you are going to be super blessed by the new, expanded, updated edition. If you've never read it, you're going to want to put that on your list. It comes out in September. Jeremiah 16. Again, spoken in the initial context of Jewish people being scattered into Babylon and then a return from Babylon and Assyria and other countries, but still not yet fully fulfilled, but getting closer every day. Jeremiah 16, 14. Therefore, the days are quickly coming, declares Adonai, declares the Lord. When it will no longer be said as Adonai lives, who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, rather as Adonai lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had banished them. So I will bring them back into their land that I gave to their fathers. He who scattered will regather. Say it again. He who scattered will regather. I've been through this many a time, and it's very, very simple. When God blesses, no one can curse. When he curses, no one can bless. When he opens the door, no one can shut it. When he shuts the door, no one can open it. When he 
smites, no one can heal. When he heals, no one can smite. When he scatters, no one can regather. When he regathers, no one can scatter. So here's what I want to focus on. We agree that God scattered the Jewish people around the world in his wrath and his judgment. We agree that Jerusalem fell under the judgment of God as a judgment for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, not just in his crucifixion, but after his resurrection. Yes, many tens of thousands of Jews, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Jews were following Jesus, but the national leadership, therefore the nation as a whole, rejected him as Messiah and came under severe divine judgment. We have been scattered in divine judgment. Then who regathered us? Well, people just did. You, you can't undo God's curse. Well, the UN did it. Oh, the UN can overrule God? No, God did it. He who scattered would regather. This is exactly what he promised through many, many prophets. Now, Charles Spurgeon, 1864. He preached this message titled, The Restoration and Conversion of the Jews. The Restoration and Conversion of the Jews. So he was 29 years old, three days shy of his 30th birthday. So he was preaching from Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10, the vision of the dry bones. So let's, let's look at that first. Ezekiel chapter 37 and verses 1 through 10. The hand of Adonai, the hand of the Lord was upon me. The Ruach Adonai, the spirit of the Lord, carried me out and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Now, remember, this follows Ezekiel 36, which is speaking of the literal return of the Jewish exiles and the people of Israel from captivity, coming back to the land. So this valley full of bones, he led me all around them. Behold, there were very many on the floor of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. Then he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Prophesy over these bones, he said to me. Say to them, dry bones, hear the word of Adonai. Thus says Adonai Elohim to these bones, Behold, I will cause Ruach, spirit, to enter you, breath to enter you, so you will live. I will attach tendons to you, bring flesh on you, and cover you with skin. Then I will put breath in you. You will live. You will know that I am Adonai. So I prophesied just as I was commanded. As I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, an earthquake. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I saw, and behold, there were tendons on them. Flesh came up, and skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the Ruach, to the wind, spirit, breath. Prophesy, said a man, and say to the Ruach, this is Adonai Elohim. Come from the four winds, Ruach. Breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied just as he commanded me. The Ruach came into them and they lived. They stood up on their feet, a vast army. All right, so here's what Spurgeon says. You ready? And this is all in the new edition of Our Hands Are Stained with Blood Command, September. Spurgeon acknowledged that the passage could be interpreted, quote, to describe the revival of a decayed church. In other words, yeah, you could spiritually apply it to revival of the church, the dead bones living. But that was not the prophet's primary intent. No, Spurgeon says, he was talking of his own people, of his own race, and of his own tribe. He surely ought to have known his own mind and led by the Holy Spirit he gives us an explanation of the vision, not thus saith the Lord, my dying church shall be restored, but I will bring my people out of their graves and bring them into the land of Israel. All right. It's 1864. 
1864. Now, 20, 30 years after that, there was a surge in Jewish exiles coming back to the land and working side by side with Arab neighbors and, in fact, developing land and buying land, which then brought an increase of Arabs from other surrounding nations that came in then to work because now there was more work, there was more opportunity because of Jewish development. And then the modern Zionist movement on the heels of that, which starts in the early 1900s, none of this was happening. None of this was happening when Spurgeon was, was making this declaration based on Ezekiel 37. Here's what he said. The meaning of our text, as opened up by the context, is most evidently, if words mean anything, first, that there shall be a political restoration of the Jews to their own land and their own nationality. Charles Spurgeon, I'm having these people say, Brown, you're not a Christian, you're a Zionist, you're not a Christian, you're a Zionist filth, and on and on. I feel bad for them. I, I genuinely do. Again, I appreciate when you say, hey, Dr. Brown, don't be discouraged. The attacks encourage me because it's a sign we're doing the right thing and we're hitting a nerve, all right? You know, someone once said to me that this dad or grandpa said, you know, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs and the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Now, I'm not advocating throwing rocks at dogs, okay? It's just a, a folk saying that someone related to me. So sometimes the more people ah, get mad and speak and attack, it's just, ooh, it looks like we hit a nerve there, all right? What encourages me is testimonies of your lives being changed by the gospel and God at work in you and how we can be a blessing to you. That's encouraging. Send those testimonies. You don't need to encourage me because I'm encouraged in the Lord. And the more the attacks come, the more encouraged I am that we're doing the right thing. Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to quote this again. The meaning of our text as opened by the context is most evidently, if words mean anything, first, that there shall be a political restoration of the Jews to their own land and to their own nationality. And then, secondly, there is in the text and in the context a most plain declaration that there shall be a spiritual restoration, a conversion, in fact, of the tribes of Israel. We'll see the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle, he said, as he read the text, it seemed evident to him, first, physical restoration to the land in unbelief, then salvation. Just what we're seeing, just what we are seeing. And now Spurgeon paints this picture. Listen to this. Israel is now blotted out from the map of nation, 1864. Her sons are scattered far and wide. Her daughters mourn beside all the rivers of the earth. Her sacred song is hushed. No king reigns in Jerusalem. She bringeth forth no governors among her tribes. But she is to be restored. She is to be restored as from the dead. Who could have known that Israel would be birthed out of the ashes of the Holocaust? Literally, from the dead. When her own sons have given up all hope of her, then is God to appear for her. Does that sound about right? She is to be reorganized. Her scattered bones are to be brought together. There will be a native government again. There will again be the form of a body politic. A state shall be incorporated and a king shall reign. Right? He's looking for a king. He's British, right? That's what the pattern is from the past. So that's his expectation. And of course, there will be the king, the Messiah, ultimately ruling and reigning. Israel has now become alienated from her own land, Spurgeon says. Her sons, though they can never forget the sacred dust of Palestine, yet die at a hopeless distance from her consecrated shores. But it shall not be so forever. 
for her son shall again rejoice in her. Her land shall be called Bu'ulah, marry. For as a young man marrieth the virgin, so shall her sons marry her. I will place you in your own land is God's promise to them. They shall again walk upon her mountains, shall once more sit under her vines and rejoice under her fig trees. And they are also to be reunited. There shall not be two nor 10 nor 12, but one, one Israel praising one God, serving one King. And that one King, the son of David, the descendant Messiah. So yes, he looks forward to the salvation of the Jewish people under King Jesus. And that is our ultimate expectation. But he clearly sees, as he said, if words mean anything, that there will be a physical restoration of the Jewish people to the land. He called Charles Spurgeon a Christian Zionist. Are you going to damn him to hell now? Because he saw that scriptures plainly taught that the Jewish people would be restored. Oh, we are just getting started. All these quotes and more in the new edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, which comes out in September. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends. I'm not taking calls today, which means this is a super content-filled broadcast with quotes, with scripture, with a ton of information for you that's eye-opening and life-changing. Charles Spurgeon Amazing sermon he preached in 1864, three days shy of his 30th birthday. He says, if anything's clear in scripture, it's that God's going to bring the Jewish people back to the land and reestablish them politically and nationally, and that they will turn to the Lord and be converted. Converted, he means the faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Yes, and others before him and after him said these things. Hey, when I write, one of my favorite things to do is enter quotes. Oh, I can't wait to put this quote in this chapter. I get this extraordinary joy. And as I was expanding, updating, revising, our hands are stained with blood, came out in 1992, has been continuously in print since then. When I was doing that and, and putting in all these quotes, massively expanded some of the chapters, quote after quote, I get this incredible joy. And I get to share this with you today here on The Line of Fire. You might say, look, look, I, be- I actually believe God's going to bring the Jewish people back to land, but it's, it's not this now. This is so political. This is so carnal and Palestinians are suffering and, and Israel's not a righteous nation. And I can't see this as the hand of God. Well, could you see it as the hand of God if, number one, God already said, I'm going to do it with my people in unbelief for my name's sake. That's one thing, which he says in Ezekiel 36 and elsewhere. A second thing that no flesh can glory in his presence, so no one can take credit for this except God, second thing. So the early Zionists, not, not even believers in God, many of them. And then third thing, what if God is doing this to stir up worldwide issues, to bring things to the surface? It, it says in excuse me, Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14, he's going to bring all nations against Jerusalem to judge them. So what if this is part of God's sifting of the nations and he's using Israel to sift, even in unbelief, even in sin. What if God's doing it? Cannot he do that as sovereign Lord? What if he's also doing it to awaken his Jewish people because more and more Jews coming back into the land of Israel now coming to faith in Jesus, the Messiah there in the land of Israel. This is all one great setup. 
said, yeah, but so much bloodshed in taking the land. There was not bloodshed in taking the land. There was bloodshed in keeping the land from those attacking. The, the, the Peel Commission in 1937, I believe, offered a plan where the vast majority of Palestine would go to the Arabs and Israel would get maybe 15%, the Jewish people. They accepted it. The Arab leaders rejected it. The 1947 partition plan, now more fair to Israel, but still very precarious. How can you defend those borders? The, the Jewish people accepted it. The Arab leadership, the Muslim leadership rejected it and attacked. That's been the pattern. That's the issue to this day. But the bottom line is Israel has nothing to boast in, no righteousness of its own. It exists not because of a strong military, not because of U.S. support. It exists by the grace of God. So listen to what Spurgeon says. <clears throat> Are you ready? If there be anything clear and plain, I say it once more, 1864, the literal sense and meaning of this passage, a meaning not to be spirited or spiritualized away, speaking of Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones, must be evident that both the two and then the 10 tribes of Israel are to be restored to their own land and that a king is to rule over them. And that king will be King Jesus. He said, I think, Charles Spurgeon, Prince of, Preacher, Prince of Preachers, one of the most Jesus-centered, Jesus-exalting preachers of all time. In fact, the, the story's told, can't verify it, but I read it, that, that someone had gone to hear one of the greatest preachers in, in England on a Sunday morning. And when he left the service, someone overheard him saying, what a sermon, what a sermon. And then that night he went to hear Spurgeon preach at Metropolitan Tabernacle and it's the same person was there and overheard him saying, what a savior, what a savior. Spurgeon, as Jesus centered a preacher as they come, listen to what he said. I think we do not attach sufficient importance to the restoration of the Jews. We do not think enough about it, but certainly if there is anything promised in the Bible, it is this. Spurgeon, he said, I imagine that you cannot read the Bible without seeing clearly that there is to be an actual restoration of the children of Israel. Yep, physically and spiritually. And what's the principle in 1 Corinthians 15? First the natural, then the spiritual. All right, Bishop J.C. Rowe, a little bit older than Spurgeon, but a contemporary Anglican bishop. And, and this, is, this is what he writes or preaches. He's imagining a conversation between a Christian and a Jew. And the Jewish person does not believe in Jesus. But the Christian believes, as we do, that Jesus literally fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about his first coming, right? So the Christian says, yeah, I, I literally believe Jesus was born in Bethlehem and born of a virgin, died for our sins and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. I believe he literally fulfilled the prophecies of his first coming. All right, so Royal says, but suppose the Jew asks you, if you take all the prophecies of the Old Testament in their simple, literal meaning. Suppose he asks you, if you believe in a literal personal advent of Messiah to reign over the earth in glory, a literal restoration of Judah and Israel and Palestine, a literal rebuilding and restoration of Zion and Jerusalem. Suppose the unconverted Jew puts those questions to you. What answer are you prepared to make? Will you dare to tell him that Old Testament prophecies of this kind are not to be taken in their plain literal sense? 
Will you dare to tell him that the words Zion, Jerusalem, Jacob, Judah, Ephraim, Israel do not mean what they seem to mean, but mean the church of Christ? Will you dare to tell him that the glorious kingdom and future blessedness of Zion so often dwelt upon in prophecy mean nothing more than the gradual Christianizing of the world by missionaries and gospel preaching? Where you dare to tell him you think it is carnal to expect the literal rebuilding of Jerusalem? Carnal to expect the literal coming of Messiah to reign? Oh, reader, if you are a man of this mind, take care what you're doing. I say again, take care. What a brilliant point. Yeah, Jesus literally fulfilled the, the prophecies of his first coming. Literally fulfilled. The, I mean, you might find one spiritualized here and there, but otherwise, one after another. Came when he was supposed to come, where he was supposed to come, born the way he was supposed to be born, die the way he was supposed to die, rise the way he was supposed to rise, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. Oh, no, but we reinterpret all the other stuff about Israel and now say, that's us, that's the church. So the church is now spiritual Jacob, all the promises to Jacob. Anyone says, yeah, I'm spiritual Jacob. Come on. So Ryle nails it. So listen to what he says. Time would fail me. And he dies in, in 1900, lived 1860 to 1900. So he dies as well and preaches this well before the rise of the modern Zionist movement. Time would fail me if I attempted to quote all the passages of scripture in which the future history of Israel is revealed. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, all declare the same thing. All predict with more or less particularity that in the end of this dispensation, the Jews are to be restored to their own land and to the favor of God. I lay no claim to infallibility interpretation of scripture in this matter. I am well aware that many excellent Christians cannot see the subject as I do. I can only say that to my eyes, the future salvation of Israel as a people, their return to Palestine and their national conversion to God appear as clearly, and plainly revealed as any prophecy in God's word. Amen, Bishop Ryle. Preach it, brother. F.F. Bruce says this, New Testament scholar leading New Testament evangelical scholar of the last generation. Israel's blindness is only partially temporary. The new covenant will not be complete until it embraces the people of the old covenant. All this material in the new edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. Now, now, you might say, but doesn't the New Testament change everything? If the New Testament could change everything, then why should an Old Testament Jew believe it? It's like when Muslims come and say that our Bible is corrupted, we should believe the Quran. Well, why should we believe the Quran? We have the word of God. If Jesus abolished rather than fulfilled, if, if, if Jesus changed everything so that it no longer resembled what came first, if it did not build on the foundation of, of the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament law and the Old Testament teaching, then it's, it's not the real gospel. It's not the good news for Israel and for the nations. Now, what I want to do is show you God's heart in all this. All right. I first want to show you God's heart. And then I want to go to the New Testament and examine this idea of quote Christian Zionism based on the New Testament. So I want to go to chapter 31 in the book of Jeremiah. 
And, and, and I want to read a verse to you. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 19. God has been, here, we'll, we'll back it up, all right? Let's, let's back it up to verse 17. Ephraim, northern Israel, has been severely judged in Jeremiah's day. Severely judged. Ephraim has gone into exile and been decimated by Assyria. So here's the dialogue, verse 17 of Jeremiah 31. I indeed heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me. I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Restore me and I will return for you are Adonai, the Lord, my God. For after I returned, I repented. And after that, I was instructed. I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated. For I bore the disgrace of my youth. So this is Israel repenting and being restored by God. And look at what God says. Is Ephraim a precious son to me? Is he a delightful child? For as often as I spoke against him, I still certainly remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have compassion on him. It is a declaration of Adonai. A few weeks ago, a caller named Daniel, seems to be a very serious student of scripture, asked me if, if Israel was still God's people or still God's children, one of those questions. And I said, in a sense, yes, in another sense, no. In, in a sense, yes, in terms of Israel being God's son, that's what he said, and, and he called them to be his son, his people. On the other hand, no, because they're not in right relationship with him now, so they are estranged. And I, I saw later on YouTube, he posted many verses backing his point that Israel was not God's people. However you slice that, God made a promise to the fathers, to the patriarchs. So he's keeping a distinct people that he's identified, even if they're not in right relation with him. He's he scattered them, he's keeping them, he's regathering them, so he continues to work and his heart always longs for them. We'll be right back. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the line of fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on the line of fire. We've been asking the question, was Charles Spurgeon a Christian Zionist? The answer is yes, yes. In that, he said that God clearly and emphatically and definitely said in his word that he would bring back the scattered tribes of Israel, the people of Judah, tribes of Israel. He would bring them back to the land, physically restore them to the land, and there would be a national turning. And Bishop J.C. Ryle, as he unfolded this again, a contemporary of Spurgeon, another highly respected church leader. You should read Ryle's books on holiness and things like that. I mean, challenging, great stuff that he, he said absolutely plain from Scripture that God will bring the Jewish people back to the land in unbelief. Best as he could see it, they'd come back in unbelief, and then once in the land, there'd be a turning. He said, well, where does the New Testament talk about the return of the Jewish people? Such a big issue for the prophets. How come the New Testament doesn't talk about it so much? Well, when most of the books of the New Testament were written, the, the, the Jewish people at least a million, several million were, were there in the land, all right? So they, they were there in the land. It wasn't called Palestine at that point. Yeah, they were also scattered around the world, but they were there in the land. The temple was standing. So there was not as much talk about restoration and regathering. But let's look at some verses in the New Testament that reinforce the point that God promised a scattering and a regathering. Luke 21, Yeshua speaking, beginning verse 20. 
But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains and those inside the city must get out and those in the countryside must not enter her. These are the days of punishment to fulfill all that has been written. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath on this people. Notice, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until, until the time of the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right. So there is going to be a scattering and a trampling until, well, until what? Well, until it stops, until it's undone. The, the one who scattered will regather. The one who judged will restore. The one who allowed for the trampling will allow for it no more. It's, it's a wonderful, glorious promise. It's a dreadful promise of judgment. And we've seen that. We've seen the, the suffering. We've seen the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 and the scattering of the Jewish people. And then the subsequent revolt with even more scattering and more suffering after that. We've seen all that. We've absolutely seen that. Well, it's only until it will be until a point in time. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led away captive into all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then what? Then restoration. All right, let's, let's look at what Peter says. We have the words of Jesus. Let's look at what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, after the healing of the lame man, he's preaching to his people. And he says this, Acts 3, beginning in verse 17, reading from the TLV as I have today. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders did. But what God foretold through the mouth of all his prophets that his Messiah was to suffer, so was he fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, so your sins might be blotted out, so times of relief or refreshing might come from the presence of Adonai, of the Lord, and he might send Yeshua, the Messiah, appointed for you. Look at verse 21. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all the things that God spoke about long ago through the mouth of his holy prophets. Boom. Of what did the prophets speak? Of what restoration did they prophesy? Is there any ambiguity or question whatsoever? that they prophesied the return of the Jewish people to the land and the glorious restoration of God's presence in the land and of the nation streaming to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. Well, we spiritualize all that. Based on what? Who gave you the right to do that? Yes, New Testament authors often make a spiritual application from the Old Testament, but they don't deny the actual meaning of it. When, when Paul is talking about in the law, when, in the Torah, where, where God says, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and, and Paul says, does he care about the oxen? Didn't he say this for our sake? Was he saying, well, then muzzle the oxen and, and make sure that he doesn't get to eat as he's plowing? No, he's making a spiritual application. Say, hey, look, yeah, oxen are important, but how much more important the gospel labor? So if someone's preaching and make sure he can make his living off the gospel, if he's ministering full time, that's his point. He's not denying, oh, then we muzzle the ox now. No, it wasn't changing. Always making a spiritual application from it. Same thing with these promises to Israel. You can make a spiritual application. Just don't steal the promises. Is, is, is that so hard? Is it so hard to recognize that God brought people back? The ones he scattered, he preserved, and 
brought us back in unbelief and now turning more and more to the Messiah. So notice also this, the Greek word for restoration noun there, it's a lengthy Greek noun, but the verbal form of that noun is used repeatedly in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, talking about restoring the Jewish people back to land, restoring the Jewish people back to land, restoring the Jewish people back to land. Why? Because God keeps his promises because he's faithful, because he makes promises based on his goodness, not ours, on his faithfulness, not ours, on his grace, not ours. I'm thrilled. I, one, am thrilled that he does, that that's the kind of God that we serve. All right, now, let's take a look in Romans chapter 15, all right? Romans 15. And, and all this material is in the new edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, the quotes from Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, the uh, information about the, the Acts 3 and Luke 21 and, and some excellent insights from Professor Gerald McDermott on that in the Greek and Acts 3. But now we go to Romans 15, also in the new edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, which comes out in September. All right. So let's look in verse 7. Now, remember the backdrop to Rome. First believers in Rome, Jews, then Gentiles. Then you've got a congregation, believers in Rome, Jew and Gentile together. Then emperor banishes all Jews from Rome. So now the Jewish believers are scattered as well. So you've got an exclusively Gentile congregation. And then the ban is lifted and the Jews can come back. So now they come back to, to Rome. And you've got Jew and Gentile side by side, and they don't do everything the same way. And that's part of what Paul's dealing with in Romans and, and about certain days and certain foods and, and things like that. And the strong believers and the weak believers, and you can read it either way. The Jewish believers were the strong, the Gentiles the weak, the Gentiles strong, the Jews the weak, or a mixture. Either way, these are pastoral things Paul's dealing with. And, and then what about the promises of God? Didn't God make promises to Israel? Paul, if you're telling us in what's now the end of the eighth chapter, there's originally no chapters, just a letter. Paul, if you're telling us the end of the eighth chapter that, that nothing can separate us from God's love, what happened to Israel? Well, let me tell you about Israel. So in, in our chapter division, we have three whole chapters now where he talks about Israel. It's that important, that important. Look at what he writes here in chapter 15, verse seven. Therefore, accept one another, just as Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. I declare that Messiah has become a servant to the circumcised for the sake of God's truth. Notice this, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Ooh, what were the promises? That the children of Israel would be innumerable, that they would dwell in the land, and that through them the world would be blessed. And of course, it is through the preeminent seed that's what Paul focuses on in Galatians 3.16, the preeminency through which the promises are fulfilled. But you have promise after promise after promise after promise to the patriarchs about the land, the land, the land, the land, the land, the land. The land. You, can't, you can't deny that. You have to deny the literal truth of Scripture to deny that. So the Messiah does not cancel the promises to the patriarchs, friends. He confirms them. He confirms them. Paul writes in Romans 11.28, even if they're enemies of the gospel for your sake, they're still loved by God because the patriarchs for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Yeah, that's, that's scripture. All right. Well, not all Israel is Israel. Romans 9, 6, Paul's talking about an Israel within Israel, Jews within the nation who believe, but thereafter, 
in Romans 9, 10, 11, every time he says Israel, he's talking about the nation as a whole, the nation as a whole, the nation as a whole, the nation as a whole. And yes, we break down every single verse with commentary and our hands are stained with blood. I declare that Messiah has become a servant to the circumcised for the sake of God's truth in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So this is what Jesus does. He confirms the promises to the patriarchs and he opens up the door of salvation for the nations because that's also what was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through their seed, the whole world would be blessed. For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will give you praise among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. And again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise Adonai, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a shoot of Jesse and the one who arises to rule the Gentiles and him shall the Gentiles hope. That's our Messiah, Jew and Gentile, one in Jesus. No caste system, no class system, no one bigger or better than the other, all equally loved by God. Romans 10, 12, he writes, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for the same God is God of all, richly answering, richly justifying, richly saving all those who call upon him for salvation. That's the good news. And that same God to show his faithfulness on the earth and because he made promises in the earth is bringing his people back to the land. And that's why the world hates it. That's why there's so much opposition to it. So I'm going to look you in the eyes. And if you're listening, give me your best ear. Those who say, if you're Christian and you're a Zionist, you're not a Christian, you are deeply mistaken. You have made serious errors in terms of the word of God. Do we sanction everything Israel does? No, of course not. Can we give healthy criticism to Israel? Absolutely. Do we pray for the salvation of Israel and pray against Israel persecuting Messianic Jews in the land? Yes, yes, yes. God keeps his promises. Hey, review this show, look at the scriptures, and be blessed.